Welcome again to the podcast, The Apologist Bookshelf, Gary Zacharias. I want to take another look at a book called Amazing Discoveries that Unlock the Bible, and it's got the best subtitle because it's exactly true. It says a visual experience. That's exactly what we have here, a visual experience. So in the other podcasts I did on this, I covered way back uh, the Amarna letters, the Hittites, David, the Philistines. So the point is, this is showing what has been discovered that uh, gives substantial uh, belief in the truth of the Old Testament, and then we'll eventually get to the New Testament as far as the history and the cultures that are represented there. So um, I'm picking up after David. So we've got Solomon, and uh, the Bible talks about uh, Solomon's temple. That's in First Kings. It's in Second Chronicles. And uh, so he replaced that old tent of meeting, you know, the tabernacle, with a spectacular place of worship. And, of course, the Babylonians then came along in the 500s and knocked it down. So it was up about 400 years. And they said not much has uh, survived from that house of worship to the Lord. So I said, no wonder, you know, looting soldiers came in, snatched up whatever they could, gold and silver and ivory and all sorts of things. But they said, there have been a few discoveries that have come to light that confirm the existence of the temple. So they have a piece of a pottery here. It's really uh, amazing. You can see the, the writing on it. It's still very clear. And it's an inscription on there that's a receipt for a donation of three shekels of silver to, quote, the house of Yahweh. And that piece, that fragment of that pottery, dates to about 800 B.C. That'd be the time of Joash. And so it said that's the oldest mention outside the Bible of Solomon's temple. So it said it's clear evidence that that Bible, that the temple described in the Bible really did exist. So this doesn't do justice to what the book has here, but it's got tablets and it's got uh, photos and uh, paintings and all on these two pages that tie in with Solomon's temple. And it even shows you what God's name, the name in Hebrew, Yahweh, what it looked like when it was uh, on parchment and all. So that's interesting. And then I love mysteries. You know that by now I've, after a lot of these podcasts. But there's a section also that follows right after that called the, the Lost Ark. That's the next page over. And, of course, the Ark disappears. When the Babylonians come in in 586 B.C., nobody's been able to find it. But the author points out that there have been two discoveries that have actually brought us a little bit closer to that actual ark. I don't think we're ever going to find it. But the first uh, discovery was in 1922, we, and you probably know this story. It was the first time people got into the tomb of uh, Tutankhamun, the pharaoh, and that hadn't been seen or handled or touched since the 14th century B.C. Can you imagine that? 1,400 years and then another 1,900 years. Well, one of the treasures inside that was a huge wooden chest, just beautiful. Uh, they think maybe to carry Pharaoh's royal robes. <clears throat> and it had four poles. And what you did is you slid uh, poles along the box there, and they had rings. And so you'd slide the pole through these rings, and then you could lift up the uh, ark. So that's the way the Ark of the Covenant was done, too. The second discovery was something that they noticed when they looked at the original temple. Now, that's inside the Muslim shrine these days called the Dome of the Rock, and, and nobody can go in if they're not Muslims. 
But in the center of where the innermost room of the temple would have been, that was called the Holy of Holies in the Bible, there's a rectangular depression carved in the precise dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. So I said that flat spot, most people believe, is the exact spot where the Ark sat during the days of Solomon's temple. And again, it's just beautiful uh, work they have here. They, they show you a model of the Ark. They have a wooden box taken from Tutankhamun's tomb that they show you here. Uh, they show you that place where the depression is, uh, where the Ark may have rested. Really great stuff. Okay, flipping over another page here. Building the temple was not Solomon's only project. Uh, he wanted to protect the trade route that ran along there in his country. So he rebuilt or he fortified some uh, famous cities, Hatzar, Megiddo, and Gezer. And it says explorers have now found the very gates and the fortresses that he um, supervised. And so they've got a reference from First Kings here. Solomon built up store cities and the towns for his chariots and for his horses, whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and throughout all the territory that he ruled. So they found a lot of these things which illustrate the truth of that. Here's one, uh, flipping another page, that is really, uh, again, backing up what the Bible has to say. It's called the Moabite stone, or sometimes it's called the Mesha stone because I was the king. And it starts off like this. It's, it's a stone that has an inscription on it using old Phoenician letters, kind of similar to Hebrew. It was about a three-foot, nine-inch tall stone. I say was. I'll tell you in a second what happened to it. It starts this way. I am Mesha, son of Chemosh, king of Moab. And they said it's an amazing biblical discovery. He was the ruler of Moab. Now, if you look at a map, you can see that Moab is to the east of the Dead Sea. And in the middle of the 9th century B.C., Moab was under the thumb of the northern kingdom of Israel. Omri and then his son Ahab apparently laid a heavy tax burden on Moab. But once Omri and Ahab were gone, there were some weaker kings, and Mesha saw his chance, and he rebelled. He threw off the shackles of foreign oppression, and he pushed Israel out, won back his own territory, so he was pretty proud. And he erected this uh, stone. And so it's the only monument to survive from Moab, Israel's neighbor. And so that's interesting stuff. And it actually has, a, in Second Kings, it mentions Mesha, king of Moab. So we got a connection between Moab and Israel. I, I am going to skip a couple of pages here. Let's see. How about, oh, this one's called The City No One Could Find. And what it says is the city of Nineveh pops up repeatedly in the Bible. Yeah, it's been around since Genesis, right? And then it's in the book of Jonah. Remember the prophet was supposed to go there and preach? By the way, I love the book of Jonah. I just find that fascinating. He says, where do you want me to go, God? And he goes the opposite way. I think it's a flat-out funny book. Uh, but I don't have time to get into that. So Nineveh is mentioned in the book of Jonah. And Nahum and Zephaniah predict all sorts of ruin and desolation. In fact, they really revel in what's coming for uh, the city of Nineveh. But the, here's the big problem. For a long, long time, nobody could find Nineveh. I mean, it got so stomped down and destroyed, they couldn't locate it. Well, then critics of the Bible said, ha, there never was a Nineveh. It's just part of these mythical stories. And they found some other cities of the Assyrian Empire, but nobody could find Nineveh until a British explorer came along. His name was Henry Layard. After a bunch of dead-end attempts, he uncovered the ruins of Nineveh. 
and they found since then palaces and sculptures and libraries of clay tablets. And it said it silenced the skeptics who said it never existed. So they have, again, some photos and tablets and maps and illustrations of what Nineveh was like. How about one called A Snapshot of an Old Testament King? Okay, not a, not a uh, Jewish king. But it says that one of the most exciting discoveries was this big black stone that they found in an Assyrian city. Modern Nimrud, it was the old city of Kala. It was a four-sided monument that's called an obelisk, about six and a half feet tall, pretty big. And instead of a lot of writing, it's got a lot of uh, carved pictures, a lot of scenes. And it says, you're reading, and it said the first people that came across it, they're looking at the text. It was talking about the military triumphs of Shalmaneser, he was a ruler of Assyria from the mid-800 B.C.s to 824 B.C. And then scholars looked at it, and one caption on one of the pictures said, Tribute of Jehu, son of Omri. And what you see is a figure bowing in obeisance in front of the Assyrian Empire. Now, it's either an emissary from Jehu or Jehu himself. He was the ruler of the northern kingdom during the time of Assyria, uh, moving out and expanding westward. This would be in the early 800s B.C. So he may have been paying some money to Assyria to let him keep his kingship. Uh, so we see that. We actually see the illustration. You can see the person bowing face down. He's on hands and knees in front of the king. All right, so that's interesting. How about war with Assyria? So when people started digging around through the remains of the city of Nineveh, they found a bunch of panels that pictured an attack by the Assyrians on the city of Lachish in Judah. They said it's almost like a motion picture. As you walk along, it's a 90-foot mural. First you see the Assyrians camping. Then you see their siege. Then you see the conquest of the city, the torture of some of the inhabitants, and then the presentation of the survivors to the victorious Assyrian king. And it says King Sennacherib's army descended on Judah like a wolf on the fold. But you know what's interesting? Sennacherib never says that he took the country there. just says he came on them. Why? We'll get that in just a second. Um, here's a section on the northern kingdom getting destroyed. Kind of depressing. But if you look in Assyria's Sargon's second palace, he's got all sorts of accounts, of course, cheering on all the things that he accomplished. Well, he mentions the fall of the northern kingdom of Assyria, uh, northern kingdom of Israel, to the Assyrian army in 722 B.C. And for 2,500 years, the only known account of that siege and conquest was in the Bible. And now, here's a historical record from the secular world that paralleled exactly what the Bible said. Okay, so it was battlefield reporting going on there. Let me see what else is in here that uh, you might find interesting. Oh, how about Hezekiah's tunnel? So Hezekiah was worried because here come the Assyrians. They need a reliable water source inside the city so they can hold out against any surrounding army that's besieging them. So they cut from the Gihon Spring, they cut into the Pool of Siloam a tunnel to bring water inside the city walls. And the Judean king did that for the fresh water. And we can see this as mentioned in 2 Kings 20 and 2 Chronicles 32, the uh, onrushing Assyrian army. 
And it says the pool of Siloam is referred to in the New Testament. That's a place where Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. So you see the illustration of the pool and all sorts of things about that. How about, this is the one I'll end on because I think this is uh, interesting. Remember Sennacherib comes in, he's boasting about how he's coming against the people of Judah. Well, remember Hezekiah, we read in the Bible, uh, he turned to God in repentance and faith. He'd had some pretty bad uh, fathers and forefathers. So God had spared Jerusalem before and Hezekiah thought he would do that again. And God promised Hezekiah that Sennacherib would return to his own land without capturing Jerusalem. And that night, we know what happened there. There was a, an angel of the Lord sweeping through. The Assyrians died, and Sennacherib took off and went back. He never set foot in Judah again. Well, they have copies of his annals, stories of what he did year by year, written on uh, six-sided clay prisms. And it's in the Syrian cuneiform script. So here's what he says. He's, he boasts that he, quote, shut up Hezekiah in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. You can almost hear him going, ha. But see, that's the best he can say. He did besiege Jerusalem. He did shut up Hezekiah, but it doesn't say, and then I defeated Hezekiah and I took him off and put him to death. No, there's no list of captured enemies, no description of looting the city, just a silent acknowledgement that he came back home empty-handed. All right, so I'll stop at that point. So we'll uh, finish up some of the other Old Testament uh, references, and then we'll move to the New Testament in this book. This is a beautiful book. Uh, it says uh, these are real people living in real places, and modern, modern archaeologists are making all sorts of discoveries. And so it says, come along on an archaeological uh, journey through the Old and New Testament, some of the best finds that illustrate Bible history and Really wonderful full-color images and a bunch of explanation, not a bunch of technical jargon. I know you'd enjoy this book, Amazing Discoveries That Unlock the Bible. Thanks, and I'll come back to this book again in a future podcast.